Good afternoon, and welcome to Outer Cape News on WOMR. My name is Matthew Dunn. This is your update on what's happening on the Outer and Lower Cape, drawing on stories reported in the pages of the Provincetown Independent, the Provincetown Banner, the Cape Codder, the Cape Cod Chronicle, and the Cape Cod Times. In this week's episode, Beth Dunn has a story about the closing of the Nauset Estuary Shell Fishery, as well as the repeal of certain public health measures related to COVID-19. I've got your Provincetown stories this week, including an update on Christine Barker's plans for the Commercial Street Waterfront development, and some information to get you ready for the upcoming town meeting. Will David's got the week off this week, but Ira Wood is here with his matter of opinion that only mess will set you free. The State Division of Marine Fisheries has closed the Nauset Marsh System to shellfish harvesting due to a bloom of red tide algae. The March 8th closure notice affects all recreational and commercial shellfishing activity in the Nauset estuary, which includes parts of Eastham and Orleans. According to the notice, collecting shellfish and the possession of shellfish, including snails from the area, is prohibited. Shellfish ingest the red tide algae, which include neurotoxins. Eating shellfish from areas with red tide could cause paralytic shellfish poisoning, with symptoms including tingling and numbness of the lips, tongue, and extremities, drowsiness, giddiness, and or unsteadiness, vomiting, and diarrhea. In extreme cases, respiratory arrest and death can result. The state agency tests for the toxin at 13 locations from March through October. Orleans Natural Resources Manager Nathan Sears said the closure would last at least a month, but could go until June. Red tide is caused by a population explosion of toxic, naturally occurring, microscopic plankton. Blooms of the poison-producing plankton are caused by environmental conditions that promote rapid growth. Those environmental conditions include warm surface temperatures, low salinity, and high nutrient content in the water. Red tide closures in the Nauset system have occurred almost every year, going back to 2011. Although eating shellfish from areas with red tide algae can be dangerous for humans, red tide doesn't harm the animals themselves. According to the Division of Marine Fisheries, when the bloom diminishes, the shellfish will eventually rid themselves of the toxin and will once again be safe to eat. The state of Massachusetts on Wednesday announced that it will end the public health emergency status in the Commonwealth on May 11th, the same day a federal public health emergency ends. Some of the last vestiges of the COVID-19 emergency declaration will end, and Governor Maura Healey will lift the vaccine mandate for most executive branch workers. The move will end six public health emergency orders, including one that requires masks in some healthcare settings. In a statement, Governor Healey said important progress has been made in the fight against COVID-19, and we've reached the point where we can update our guidance to reflect where we are now. 
Healy also praised her predecessor, Governor Charlie Baker, saying his administration saved countless lives by putting these measures in place in a time of immense crisis. Baker declared a state of emergency in Massachusetts due to COVID-19 on March 10, 2020. Health and Human Services Secretary Kate Walsh said Massachusetts is in a very different place compared to where it was three years ago when the pandemic prompted widespread restrictions and shutdowns. Walsh said that while we will continue living with COVID-19, we can now incorporate the tools we have to manage the virus into our standing response to respiratory illness within our health care system. More than 84% of the state's population completed a primary vaccine series to protect against COVID-19, and about 30% have received an updated bivalent booster, both among the highest rates in the country, according to the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. When the state public health emergency ends, Healy will rescind an executive order that required executive branch workers to be vaccinated against COVID-19 or secure an exemption. And her administration signaled it may work to bring back some employees who left because of the mandate. COVID-19 vaccine mandates will remain in place for some state employees due to regulations from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services and the Executive Office of Health and Human Services. Outer Cape residents have a new incentive to get a COVID-19 vaccine or booster, a $75 gift card to Stop and Shop or Cumberland Farms at clinics in Eastham and Wellfleet in March. The first opportunity took place yesterday at East Ham Town Hall, but you've got another chance on Tuesday, March 21st, at the Methodist Church in Wellfleet from 5 to 7 p.m., and Friday, March 24th, from noon to 4 p.m. at the East Ham Public Library. Walk-ins are welcome. The Massachusetts Department of Public Health selected the Outer Cape as one of 14 communities to participate in the Rural Vaccine Program. The program identifies areas where demographics, geography, and limited infrastructure make healthcare delivery harder, which can increase COVID-19 morbidity and mortality. Throughout the pandemic, people who received Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or SNAP, benefits got larger payments to help out when many experienced lost wages and an increase in the cost of food. But those emergency payments came to an end on March 1st, and the family pantry of Cape Cod is bracing for a bump in client visits. Pantry Executive Director Christine Menard said SNAP beneficiaries are still using the groceries they purchased with their last allotment, but the pantry is expecting to see a 10 to 15 percent increase in requests for service as a result of the federal change and traffic is already up 40% over last year. Income-qualifying people receive monthly payments that they can use to purchase grocery staples, and the emergency allotment program meant that payments came twice a month. For some local families, it meant an additional $850 a month to help buy food. Menard said the goal now is to help families adjust to the reduced benefits. Governor Healy's state budget includes funds to help SNAP recipients on a temporary basis as the extra federal benefits end, but it's not clear whether the legislature will keep the funds in the spending plan. 
Work on the Sagamore Bridge, that had been scheduled to start earlier this month, has been delayed and will now begin on Monday, March 20th, according to the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. Vehicle travel over the bridge spanning the Cape Cod Canal will be reduced to one lane in each direction, while roadway and structural repairs take place. The lane restrictions are expected to last at least two months. Those lane restrictions will be in effect 24 hours a day until the project is completed, and police details will be on hand to help with traffic. Traffic delays are likely during the morning and afternoon peak travel periods each day. The work is expected to run into May, but officials have said they plan to be finished before the start of Memorial Day weekend. The Barley Neck Inn in East Orleans has new managers. Cameron and Tyler Hadfield have built a reputation for themselves in recent years at their popular breakfast spot, The Rail. Now the brothers will take over dinner service at the restaurant across the street. Barley Neck owner Phil Ruggieri said the parties came to an agreement on running the inn last month after the brothers initially toured the restaurant with an interest in buying it. While a transfer of ownership didn't materialize, both sides continued to talk. Ruggieri and his wife purchased the inn at the corner of Beach Road and Main Street in 2015. The restaurant has long been a popular spot, dating back to its days as the Pequot Inn. There were a few difficult seasons during the pandemic, highlighted by complaints from neighbors about live entertainment on the inn's lawn. Ruggieri said there won't be any more outdoor live music at the establishment. The Hadfields say they're keeping their focus on improving dinner service and putting their stamp on the inn's menu. Last year, service expanded at the rail to include lunch and dinner, but that will go back to breakfast only as they focus on serving dinner across the street. The brothers said patrons can continue to expect the seafood and other offerings they've come to enjoy, but Tyler said he wants to bring some Asian and Caribbean influences into the menu. The rail will open its doors March 24th on weekends only until mid or late May when it will go to seven days a week. As for the barley neck, Cameron said he and Tyler are tentatively looking at an April 7th reopening. As with the rail, the inn will be open on weekends only until mid or late May. The Hadfield's agreement to operate the inn runs just through this season, but both parties say they're excited about the potential for a longer working relationship. The Harwich Police Department will hold its second annual Polar Plunge on Saturday at Red River Beach to raise money for Special Olympics Massachusetts, the organization that sponsors the athletic competitions in the Commonwealth. Last year's Polar Plunge drew a crowd of more than 200 people to Red River Beach, with approximately 100 participants taking a dip in the chilly waters of Nantucket Sound. Deputy Police Chief Kevin Considine, the Barnstable County representative to the Special Olympics, said that event raised more than $30,000. Families, friends, school groups, and others are encouraged to join together with police department teams from across the county to participate in the plunge. The event begins at 11 a.m. on Saturday, March 18th, at the east end of Red River Beach, 
Registration starts at 9 a.m. There will be a tent set up for changing into warmer wear after the dip. There will be additional events in the tent, including refreshments and an awards ceremony for the best costumes. The program supports opportunities for Special Olympic athletes, honoring them with medals and awards. The Special Olympics Summer Games are held each year at Harvard Stadium. For Outer Cape News, this is Beth Dunn. There's one less marijuana dispensary in Provincetown as Heal Provincetown on Shankpainer Road next to Stop and Shop has closed for good. The business, which was originally planned as a medical cannabis dispensary on Harry Kemp Road, but later opened as a recreational dispensary on Shankpainer Road, has returned its license for the Provincetown store to the state's Cannabis Control Commission. Patricia Foss, president of Heal Incorporated, declined to answer further questions about the closure. Heal Incorporated's parent company still owns a dispensary in Sturbridge and is developing a cultivation facility in Warren. Linda Fiorello, the town licensing agent in Provincetown, confirmed the closure to the licensing board at its February 28th meeting. At the end of January, Fiorella became aware that Heal had posted a sign that said, See you in April. All of the host community agreements that Provincetown signed with cannabis dispensaries, however, require them to be open at least four hours per day, four days per week, with the exception of a once-a-year break not to exceed 30 days. Fiorella wrote a letter to Foss on February 7th ordering Heal to comply with its agreement. Violations would result in fines beginning at $100 per day and escalating to $300 per day, with each day being a separate offense. On February 20th, Heal's board sent a letter back to Fiorella stating that, on January 27th, Heal was forced to close temporarily as it had no staff who were trained and registered to open and close the dispensary. Store manager, assistant manager, and shift lead positions were all vacant, the directors wrote, and the Cannabis Control Commission has lengthy requirements for the vetting and training of new hires for those jobs. The directors wrote that, based on the daily fine outlined by Fiorella, they would have no choice but to shutter the business permanently. The store opened in October of 2021 and was open for about 15 months. Both town-by-town sales figures and the testimony of owners show that retail marijuana has been a competitive business here. Curaleaf at 170 Commercial Street in Provincetown was the first cannabis dispensary to open on Cape Cod. During its first fiscal year, which ran from July of 20 through June of 21, Curaleaf gave Provincetown about $250,000 in host community fees, which corresponds to total sales of about $8.3 million. That number fell significantly as other stores opened in Provincetown, Wellfleet, and East Ham. 
CuraLeaf's last four quarterly impact fees to the town totaled $113,000, which corresponds to about $3.8 million in annual sales. Eastham, meanwhile, has benefited from its location closer to the customers of the Mid-Cape. Emerald Grove was the first dispensary to open there in May of 21. In the fiscal year that followed, Emerald Grove paid East Ham host fees corresponding to $6.6 million in sales. Salty Farmers got a later start, opening in August of 21, and had sales of about $2 million that fiscal year. Piping Plover and Cape Cod Cannabis, both in Wellfleet, sold about $3 million each. At the annual town meeting on April 3rd, Provincetown voters will consider three citizen-petitioned articles proposing amendments to Provincetown's general bylaw that would institute new regulations on short-term rentals. The select board at its March 13th meeting voted 4-1 to one not to recommend the proposals. A short-term rental is legally defined as a unit that's rented for not more than 31 days at a time. In Provincetown, short-term rentals require a Board of Health certificate. Article 18 would regulate the certification process, requiring owners to register their short-term units annually and limiting permits to one per property owner. Article 19 would create a cap of 1,500 short-term rentals and establish a town-run lottery or waitlist system for distributing relinquished or revoked certificates. Article 20 proposes a cap of 1,283 short-term rentals and would allow certificates to be bought and sold privately between owners, as well as pass automatically from a certified seller to a buyer in real estate transactions. It caps the number of short-term rentals per owner at three. The town currently has just over 700 valid short-term rental certificates on its books, according to Assistant Town Manager Dan Riviello. But data collected by a company under contract with Provincetown has suggested that more than 1,400 units are rented out during the peak summer season. Riviello told the Provincetown Independent that the town is working to identify the remaining 700-plus property owners and bring them into compliance with the rules. Over the last 20 years, survey data shows that Provincetown experienced a roughly 60% drop in the number of long-term rental units, going from 849 in the year 2000 to 334 in 2019. The town is projected to add more than 150 units to its inventory in the next few years as multiple housing developments come online. At the select board's meeting, numerous people raised concerns about Articles 18, 19, and 20. One resident, who is a real estate agent, said the proposal would likely accelerate the influx of buyers who don't need to be concerned about generating rental income from their property. Several second homeowners cited the increased business that short-term rentals bring to town and the tax revenue generated by the visitors. In 2018, the Commonwealth passed a short-term rental occupancy tax 
that extends the rooms tax paid by inns and hotels to short-term rentals. Finding ways to regulate the booming short-term rental industry, facilitated through platforms like Airbnb, VRBO, and HomeAway, and quantify its role in destabilizing long-term rental markets, has been a subject of intense debate in municipalities around the world. Lisbon, Portugal recently put a moratorium on new certificates in certain dense tourism areas. Palm Springs, California passed regulation late last year that capped permits at 20% of residential neighborhoods. And in 2018, Portland, Maine instituted a cap of 400 non-owner-occupied short-term rental units in the city area. At the Provincetown Select Board meeting, two of the authors of the citizen petition said they intended to amend the scope of their articles before town meeting by requesting a one-year moratorium on additional short-term rental certificates and the creation of a working group on the issue. Select Board member Leslie Sandberg, who said she opposed the articles, also said she supported a working group. There will be a town meeting forum at Town Hall at 5.30 on Wednesday the 22nd, where petitioners may present their articles and answer questions. The Town of Provincetown annual town meeting is set for 6 p.m. April 3rd in the auditorium at Town Hall. The warrant for the town meeting can be found at provincetownma.gov. A narrow strip of land extending from Commercial Street to the harbor could be the future home to two new hotels with a total of 51 rooms, 13 residential condominiums, two restaurants, beneath the building parking, and a 264-foot long pier. Christine Barker's proposal for 227-229 Commercial Street reveals her intent to expand on her already approved plans for the abutting Old Reliable Fish House site, where she'll construct a mixed-use building with 31 hotel rooms and four condos, a restaurant, meeting space, parking, and the pier. Barker will need to take the new proposal through its own permitting process, beginning with an April 5th public hearing before the Historic District Commission. The plans for the more recently acquired 229 Commercial Street property include the addition of up to 20 more hotel units, 9 more residential condos, another restaurant, and parking beneath a three-story building. The Little Red Building at 227 Commercial Street, where an essentials store is currently located, will be renovated to house the Provincetown Bookshop, bought in September of 2021 by Barbara Clark, an investor in Barker's Venture and now operating at 229 Commercial Street. The front building at 229, with its classical-style pediment, was originally the engine room of the Colonial Cold Storage Company. In 1900, a five-story ice house stood behind the Cold Storage Company's engine room. The building standing on that footprint now houses a warehouse, a long-closed restaurant, and nine empty apartments. No longer structurally sound, that building is to be replaced. As with the building planned for the old reliable fish house site, it will stand taller, 
because both buildings must be elevated to meet FEMA flood standards, with the first floor sitting on a platform 19 feet above sea level. While the rear of 229 Commercial will sit on a platform, the front will remain at its current street level, as will 227. Barker's approved plan for the old reliable property remains stalled in state land court, the subject of an appeal focused on the project's scale by a butter Patrick Patrick, who owns Marine Specialties at 235 Commercial Street. There will be a celebration of the spring equinox this Saturday on the Orleans Village Green at the corner of Main Street and Route 28. The event, which will get underway at 3 p.m., is the brainchild of organizer Michael Holt. Holt's band, Woof Woof Meow, will entertain people and encourage them to stay warm by dancing. Holt says the band has helped usher in the change of seasons about seven times in various towns across the Outer Cape, but this will be the first time they bring the party to Orleans. The event is sponsored by Snow Library and the Orleans Cultural District. Snow Library Assistant Director Kaimi Lum said the Equinox concert will be the first public event to happen in the park since it was replanted and restored following Orleans sewer construction. The repertoire will include reggae, ska, funk, new wave, and afrobeat by Woof Woof Meow, with Holt on vocals and keyboard, Ricky Bates on drums, Lisa Brown on vocals and percussion, Trevor Pearson on bass, and Ken Field on sax and flute. Additionally, the event will include an equinox ceremony led by Tracy Plout and Susan Starkey. Anyone attending is invited to bring a chair or blanket. Ken Field is also scheduled to make the journey to Wellfleet following the event to play with VB and the Buzz to help us celebrate WOMR's 41st birthday at Wellfleet Preservation Hall starting at 6 p.m. And I hope to see everybody there. For Outer Cape News, my name is Matthew Dunn. Are you a messy person or a neat person? Have you ever tripped over a pile of yesterday's clothing when getting out of bed in the morning? Does the arrangement of your living room bear a resemblance to your garage? Are you totally oblivious to the cobwebs on your ceiling fans? If you can answer yes to any of these questions, you qualify as messy. But don't take offense. That may be a good thing, at least according to a New York Times article that says messy people are not only more creative than their more fastidious counterparts, but also more likely to break with convention and try new things. There's some good news for you compulsively clean, I mean orderly, people too. Apparently, you're more likely to be good Samaritans and follow a healthy diet. And good for you. You probably also iron your underpants. 
But today I'm talking about us creative types, people who use their cars for the same purpose that many women use their pocketbooks and whose desks always seem to look like the ceiling just caved in on top of them. We know that clutter allows our minds to race with brazen ideas. We know that vacuuming is an excuse for intellectual laziness. Or at least I know that now. Before I read the Times, I just thought I was a slob. The article cites an experiment by psychologists at the University of Minnesota who assumed that since order and disorder are both prevalent in nature and culture, each environment conferred advantages for different outcomes. As you might suppose, they thought orderly environments led people toward tradition and convention, and disorderly environments encouraged just the opposite, breaking with formality. They devised three experiments to prove their point. In each one, the subjects were asked to sit in identical rooms, identical except that one was as neat as a pin and the other looked like the aftermath of a frat party. The same problems were presented to the subjects in each experiment, choosing healthy versus junk food snacks, coming up with inventive uses for ping-pong balls, and choosing between a classic fruit smoothie or one that was more exotic. The results of all three experiments showed that those people surrounded by mess overwhelmingly thought outside the box. Now, I would be the first person to question any so-called experiment that bases its findings on ice cube trays made of ping-pong balls and blueberry chickpea smoothies, but I do choose to embrace this experiment because it speaks directly to my own personal creative method, which is, well, a very messy house. To wit, my wife and I are both writers. We both love gardening, an activity that turns our kitchen into a working farmhouse. We have three cats, meaning we spend more time emptying litter boxes and wiping up hairballs than polishing the silver. Our offices are forests of manuscripts and mail, printers, cords, computers, and hard drives. Both of us would much rather do our writing than vacuum, dust, scrub, sweep, or polish. We lived together for six years before we got married because neither of us wanted to be the wife. We dutifully attempt to clean the house on a regular basis, but like a newly mowed field, it always reverts to its natural woodland state within hours. It's not that I don't love to be in immaculate, uncluttered places. In fact, I suffered through years of tedious and uncomfortable Zazen meditation classes because the sensei's living room was one of the few places that didn't make me sneeze. But to inspire my creativity, I need cats walking on the keyboard, teetering stacks of half-read books, empty coffee cups, an overflowing drawer of dried-out pens, and cobwebs. There's nothing like cobwebs to really get the creative juices flowing. And don't take it from me. Take it from the New York Times. Decluttering will reduce stress, prevent pests, improve health, and encourage well-being. But only mess 
will set your mind free. I'm Ira Wood, and that's my opinion. And that's it for this week's edition of Outer Cape News. Thanks go to the Provincetown Independent, the Provincetown Banner, the Cape Codder, the Cape Cod Chronicle, and the Cape Cod Times. Thanks also to Beth Dunn and Ira Wood for their contributions to the program. And thanks to Henry and Jane Fisher and Jacob Greenberg for being sustaining members of Outer Cape News. And now stay tuned for Friday Afternoon Jazz. It's Stirred Not Shaken with Hank and Andy on listener-supported community radio. WOMR.